0: Philip uh, mentioned that Easter egg hunt, go ahead and come if you have kids, if you don't have kids, but what I want to know is, is there a, a maximum age limit on hunting eggs? Because um, I have a feeling I could crush those children at that. And, no. We're just on the cusp of the beginning of another baseball season. Opening day is actually this week pitchers and catchers reported uh, over a a month ago, so it's here, it's coming. And I suppose I don't need to tell anybody here that the Astros won the world championship last year. (laughs) But I also, yeah, finally, on that note, I don't need to tell anybody here that uh, before that, for several years, they were far and away the worst team in baseball. But then if you go back a little further, For several years, they had a a good run, where year in and year out for about a decade, they were either in the playoffs or at least were in contention right up to the very end, made a World Series another year. So we know that you better enjoy the feeling that comes with being on top now because that aura of invincibility is not going to last forever. One day it's gonna turn back around in the other direction. That's just one easy, common-sense example of the fact that life goes in cycles, ups and downs. Greatness is inevitably followed by decline. Strength is inevitably followed by weakness. A great family in one generation might not be a great family in the next generation. Empires rise and fall. We live in a world where dissolution is all around us, in all aspects of life. And so because of that, we also live in a world that is constantly in need of renewal, rebuilding, restoration, some kind of beginning again. And that's every bit as true in the religious realm as it is in every other area of life. God's people demonstrate again and again and again in Scripture that apostasy is only one generation away. A faithful generation can easily be followed by an unfaithful generation. The obvious example of that phenomenon is in the book of Judges. You remember the end of the book of Joshua. Joshua Assembles all the people and he charges them. You know this passage. He says choose you this day whom you will serve Whether the gods that your father served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord And all the people said we're going to serve the Lord too and he warned them that was going to be difficult You're not ready for that. They said no, we're going to serve the Lord and they did just as long as Joshua and the elders who were his contemporaries were alive. But as soon as that faithful generation died out, the people slid into apostasy. And that's the background to all of the book of Judges. And you know, Judges is all about these cycles of apostasy, falling away from God, and God punishes them. And then the people cry out for deliverance, and God restores them, and right worship, and a renewal of the people is restored there for a time. But then they fall away again, over and over and over again, this plays out. A great example of this sort of decline and of the need for renewal is found in 2 Chronicles chapters thirty-three, or 34 and 35, I should say. This was really the impetus for our, our lesson this evening. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken away into captivity by this point, but the people of Judah, even seeing the outcome for the north, have turned to idolatry again themselves. Most of that uh, under the reign of Manasseh, an evil king for most of his life, whom we looked at last week. The true worship of God at the temple was sorely neglected. There were high places all around. And into this environment stepped a boy king, only eight years old, named Josiah. And in about 638 B.C., he comes to the throne. And then, early on in his reign, when he's still only a teenager, he begins certain religious reforms. We pick it up in chapter 34, uh, verse 3. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. So Joshua initiated this reform program. But then when he was 26 years old, he went and commanded the workmen to go and and repair, refurbish the temple that had fallen into disgrace. And if you remember this story, it was in the process of that that they discovered the book of the law, the law of Moses. They'd fallen so far away that the law had actually been lost to them for a time. The workmen immediately stopped everything they were doing. They brought the book to Josiah, and it was read in his presence. And when he heard it, he was overwhelmed. He was distraught with just how far they'd fallen Verse number 19 of the chapter says that when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And then he says in verse 21, Go inquire the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. He called the people, to come and assemble and to listen as the law was being read and the people were every bit as distraught seemingly as he was and So they agreed to renew themselves to keep the law and in fact if you were to read into chapter 35 You'll see that they kept the Passover for the first time in generations the way that God had intended them to keep it originally This story is a really powerful example for it. Because it demonstrates clearly, on the one hand, how God's people can fall away. But then it demonstrates, secondly, the need for renewal, to come back to God, to be restored. And then, most importantly for our purposes tonight, it demonstrates how you go about that restoration. Scripture provides the means for renewal you might say that the Bible is a sort of self-correcting device, in a sense. And that's not because the Bible possesses any authority in itself. And by that, I mean sometimes people will, will get the idea that we almost worship the Bible. But the Bible has authority because it reveals God to us. It's how He's revealed Himself to humanity. And so when God's people have drifted, the Scriptures lead them again and again back to God's true standard. It encourages them to return back into the right way. We go to the New Testament, and we see that during the time that the apostles were on earth, they issued warnings because they were all too aware of this phenomenon, that God's people could fall away. And you can see God's vision, His foresight, in making preparations for His people should they drift away. So among these passages, for example, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's the warning Paul gives to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Watch out, because false teachers are going to come in. They can pull people away. Another example, Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Or we might consider the words of the Apostle John. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they're of God, Because many false prophets are gone out into the world And yet in spite of all of these warnings and many other warnings in scripture we could know These departures still came in doctrine in practice There was a weakening a watering down a falling away From the Christianity that the Lord intended Now, I'm going to give you a a whirlwind history lesson tonight. Let's fast forward about 1,500 years, give or take. 15th and the 16th century, there came the Reformation, led by Martin Luther and others. Most all of you are probably familiar with this, generally speaking. The Reformation grew out of a rediscovery of the Scriptures. I talked about how God's Word brings renewal and restoration. Well, they went back, and because of the rediscovery of ancient learning in the Renaissance they started to go back and read the scriptures in the original languages for the first time in centuries and they discovered in some cases just how far off they'd gotten and then that was spurred on further by translating the Greek into the vernacular languages German and French and things like that and then by the printing press that made this readily available to people all over Europe the Reformation was an effort based in Scripture to return to the original state of the church. But pretty soon, that same tendency to fall away reared its ugly head again. And group after group, numerous different religious groups emerge. Many new churches, new doctrines, new practices. Religious wars were even fought as a result of this between Protestants and Catholics, between different Protestant groups. But there remained during this time other groups who still viewed primitive Christianity, the first century church, as normative. That is, that it established the, the standard that they wanted to follow and, and be like the New Testament church. Uh, the early Anabaptists stand out here. Anabaptist means to baptize again or to re-baptize. Uh, they emerged from Zurich, where Ulrich Zwingli was the ringleader of the Reformation. If you were here Wednesday night, we talked a little bit about Zwingli. Zwingli had been influenced by Luther and Luther's idea that he'd recovered of salvation by grace through faith. The Anabaptists thought about that and they realized that if salvation is by faith, then the only people who should be baptized are those who've come to faith. And so they went to Zwingli and tried to get him to institute believers baptism, but he didn't want to do it. You see, Zwingli's Reformation was propped up by the city council. And you had to be baptized as an infant to even be a citizen it was just too complicated too messy for him to try to disentangle that and as a result those anabaptists were driven from zurich they were hunted down they were hated by protestants and catholics alike in fact the protestants and the catholics if they couldn't agree on anything it was that they both hated the anabaptist many of them were executed uh, the favorite method of executing Anabaptists was by drowning Because they liked baptism so much, they'd hold them under the water until they felt they'd had enough of it. We could talk about more groups during this time period. I don't want to give the impression that this is a comprehensive history by any means. But let's fast forward one more time into America. The 18th and 19th century with the Restoration Movement or the Stone Campbell Movement, as some scholars call it these days. Conditions in America in the late 18th and the early 19th century made the time ripe for this sort of renewal movement. There was a dissatisfaction with all of these human creeds and all of the division in the religious world. Uh, You think about it particularly in America where people had fled from Europe uh, because of religious persecution. All of these different Christian groups and people are looking around and wondering, well, which one's the right one? all of these different beliefs. Which one do we choose? There was a a feeling in particular that the Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity had caused people to not feel as if they could seek God. That is, you had to have some sort of inner light, some experience. You couldn't pursue God on your own. There was a general neglect of the Bible. There was a, a stagnation in terms of Church attendance and membership, you know, contrary to what we think typically about the early days of this country. I don't know if you realize this, but church membership, church attendance, percentage-wise, was actually lower in the decade after the revolution than it is now. It's not all that uncommon when you have a war that tears things up like that. So the restoration movement, or movements, would be better because several of these arose spontaneously in different parts of the country within a few decades of each other, was an effort to promote the unity of all believers on the basis of the New Testament. Their objective was Christian unity, to get rid of all of these divides of denominations. The basis of that unity was the New Testament, and the way that they went about it, the method, was restoration. You see, the idea was to take the essentials spelled out in the New Testament that all Christians could agree on and use those as the foundation of faith and practice. And some of those things have come down to us as slogans. A lot of you probably heard these. We speak where the scriptures speak, we're silent where the scriptures are silent. Or another one that was popular. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. In all things, charity. There are several characters we could mention here, people of great faith and great courage. James O'Kelly, for example, was a preacher in North Carolina, in Virginia. He was a leading figure in what would eventually become the Methodist Church in America. But O'Kelly went to the national conference of his church in 1792 and he openly declared to the assembly that he felt their method of organization was unscriptural wasn't authorized by the Bible. And so he called on people to withdraw from it and to try to return to the roots of the early church. And eventually some 20,000 people followed him back towards New Testament Christianity. Abner Jones and Elias Smith were Baptist preachers in New England. The two of them were disturbed by sectarian names and creeds, and they led a dozen small congregations to be Christians only. That was in 1802. In 1804, a name some of you might be familiar with here, Barton W. Stone, a Presbyterian preacher in Frontier, Kentucky, led a movement back to the New Testament. He and some of his fellow Presbyterian ministers were concerned about religious division. They were concerned about some practices they thought weren't true to the Scriptures. And so they wrote this document called The Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery, uh, resolved that this Presbytery die and sink into the body of Christ at large. In 1809, Thomas Campbell issued his famous declaration and address in which he says, this is a quote, Nothing ought to be admitted as of divine obligation in the constitution and management of the church, but what is expressly enjoined by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles upon the New Testament church, either in express terms or by approved precedent." Nothing ought to be received into the faith or worship of the church or be made a term of communion among Christians That is not as old as the New Testament Now you who are sitting here tonight you may have heard of some of these names Some of you may enjoy this sort of history. You may know all these names some of you might not know any of them Because unfortunately we're not very good at remembering our history and I feel like that's had unintended negative consequences for us at times. But we owe these men, all of them and and others, a great debt of gratitude because whether we've heard of them or not and whether we realize it or not, we're all heirs to those seeds that they planted. We're all descendants of them in some way. In the book of Jeremiah, the scripture that was read earlier, there's this meaningful statement in chapter 6 and verse number 16. The prophet says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Throughout the history of God's people, there has been a recurring need to return to those old paths, to seek those ancient landmarks, because over and over, there's been this tendency, we've noted, to drift away and then consequently this need to return for Reformation, for Restoration. Those leaders of the American Restoration Movement saw it in several different areas, in matters of doctrine. We mentioned that dispute going back to the, Re- the Reformation about the nature of baptism. Well, that had led to, in America, in the early 19th century, people not knowing whether or not they were saved. They didn't know what to do, because when we remove baptism, you've got to have something there. And so people thought the teaching was influenced by Calvinism. You needed to have some sort of religious experience. You needed to feel something inside to know that you were God's child. And you can go back and read some of these accounts, and it's just absolutely heartbreaking. People who believed in Jesus and were attempting to follow him Talking about how they didn't know that they were saved and they would spend all night long at times praying and crying and wailing to hoping to feel something inside and they didn't feel anything and So they returned to the scriptures and they rediscovered the teaching about baptism that that's what's The point in time when God saves you that's what puts you into his people Then, too, there were reforms in matters of worship. Uh, The weekly observance of the Lord's Supper was a big one. That was important to Thomas and Alexander Campbell in particular when so many other groups were ignoring it. Uh, The organization of the church was also reformed. Instead of different councils or hierarchies with uh, congregational leadership, elders overseeing the church, deacons working under them. All of these are good things if we want to believe and practice as the early church did. But the problem is, I'm not here to to pat ourselves on the back about all of these things, you know, baptism, uh, immersion for remission of sins, or weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, or having elders, all those things are important. I believe we need to believe and practice those things and others that we couldn't name. But the danger is, because we've recovered those things and we look and we can see where these things are consistent with the witness of the New Testament, and they are, and we look around and we see where maybe others are inconsistent, the danger is that we might think, because of this, that we're a finished product, that we've arrived, that we've restored everything that there is to restore, we've held the New Testament up to ourselves, and we're finished. We're finished. We got it made Nothing is left to be done In response to that We all want to be like first century Christians But in a sense we're really in the position of second century Christians We don't have any Apostles here among us to directly guide us. We have their witnesses left for us and We're trying our best to put that into practice But our best Always needs to be open potentially to, to revision, to reformation. Uh, we might need to change some things, as uncomfortable that is, as that is in times, to bring ourselves back into alignment with God's will. And with that said, the last thing I want us to know tonight thinking about areas where we need renewal, I think back to Acts chapter 2, the end of this chapter. Peter's just preached his sermon on Pentecost. 3,000 had been baptized and added to the church, and we have then this summary statement about life for the early Christians. In verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I want you to notice here, if any church is the ideal church, is a pattern for us, it's the Jerusalem church right here at the beginning. And notice some of these things here. They were so committed to the Lord, first of all, that they continued steadfastly, it says, in His service. They joyfully accepted the loss of prestige. They were willing to be outcast, maybe even from their families, the loss of their property, in some cases, ultimately, even the loss of their lives. They were willing to do that because for them to live was Christ. And yet we contrast that attitude with the apathy that exist in so many congregations today. It says, secondly, uh, we could note that their concern for the Lord transcended material things. It talks here about the fact they sold their property, they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet, they distributed to all who had need. We could see a lot of examples of that in the New Testament. One of my favorite ones, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the church in Macedonia, Paul's talking about this collection that he's taking up. And he mentions those in Macedonia that even though they were so poor, they gave out of their poverty because they were concerned about meeting the needs of their Jewish brethren who were hurting. And yet we contrast that with the materialism that's so rampant in the church today, especially in the American church. We need to have a real concern for those who are hungry, those who are sick, those who are naked, those who are in prison, those who are in distress of any type. And if, I'll I'll pat you on the back here, one of the things, for example, that attracted me to this congregation was when I looked and saw some of your ministries involved in just those sorts of things. Uh, The class that reaches out to those with special needs, those who are marginalized, they're in distress, and a lot of people wouldn't take care of them like that. Uh, In particular, the food bank, feeding dozens and dozens of people, every month. Those are good things. We must emulate the early church's example. We must emulate Christ's example if we really want to be his people and caring for those like them. They were fervently evangelistic. It talks about here how they're devoted to the apostles' teaching or doctrine. You read the rest of Acts and you know that they went around everywhere preaching the word. In fact, after the persecution that results and finally culminates in the death of Stephen. The church is scattered there running for their lives. What do they do? Everywhere they go, they go telling people about Jesus and to the point that within a generation, the gospel had been proclaimed all over the entire known world. They did so much with so little. We contrast that to how we often do so little with so much. Do we have the same concern for the lost that the early church did? They believed, final thing I wanna mention from this passage, they believed there was power in prayer and that God truly answered prayers. They continued daily in prayers, it says there. And man, if you read through Acts, you can see how the church believed in the power of prayer. In chapter one, they go back waiting for the Holy Spirit and they're spending that time in prayer. They pray to select a successor to Judas among the apostles. You could fast-forward here to chapter 4 when they first encounter persecution. The church gathers together and they pray to God for boldness Chapter 12 when Peter's in prison. They think he's going to be executed They're all together praying chapter 13 when the Spirit says to set apart Paul and Barnabas for their work their mission They're praying on and on and on and on we could go with that And yet compare that to our prayer lives I won't speak for everyone here, but I, I know mine is not always what it needs to be. I'd like to have a a more active prayer life. I need to work on that. We could multiply the examples here, but the point of this is as important as our organization is, as important as our, our forms and our worship is, and I believe strongly in restoration, all those things are important. But can we really look at the first century church and say we've restored it? I don't think so. But that's okay in the sense that restoration isn't a destination. It's a journey. It's something that we're constantly called to. We ought always to be eager to evaluate and to re-evaluate ourselves in light of God's Word. We need a deeper dedication to Christ. We need an active pursuit of the goals that He gave us. We need to be cleansed. We need to be strengthened. We stand always, in every generation, under the judgment of Scripture. Restored, but ever restoring. The church is made up of earthen vessels. It's not without flaws as long as it exists in this world. And all down through the centuries, It's needed to be held up against the mirror of God's Word to see whether or not it measures up. And we're not immune to that any more than anyone in a previous generation was. That reminds us that we have not only that responsibility collectively, but individually. We have a personal responsibility to come to know God and His Word. We said this is where we find God's will. This is the place that corrects and renews us. Maybe you're here this evening and your life is out of alignment with God's will. Maybe you need to make changes. Maybe you need to be restored. If we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and sing.